Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. In the late 1930s, there came into being a revolutionary group in the treatment of alcoholism to be called Alcoholics Anonymous. This group of chronic, unmanageable, compulsive users of alcohol had tested and failed every known human agency and method to attain a life of sobriety. It would seem that the suffering alcoholic was doomed to insanity and our death. However, through the sponsorship and guidance of the Oxford Group, our early AA fathers were presented with a set of fundamental spiritual concepts augmented with God's grace would remove the compulsion and the obsessive need to drink and set in place good orderly directions for living with sobriety. The miracle of God's gift of sobriety was now exemplified by former sufferers and the message of recovery was for anyone that desired a change to build a new life by pursuing a new dimension of noble ideals and spiritual forces that would lead us to a union with God and a place in his plans. As one who was privileged to have known the founders and early members of both the Oxford and AA groups, I will be eternally grateful for their humility, dependence on God, and the love and unselfishness by sharing their experience, strength, and hope that we who are to follow can live in the fellowship of the Spirit and know God's truth. I shall always believe that I was exposed to and led to AA through divine guidance. It was the right time, the right place, the right group, the right sponsor, and by the grace of God, the miracle of sobriety and a new life was now mine. Love freely offered had been freely taken. Since I am now a member of an exclusive group of 40-plus years of sobriety, whose ranks are rapidly thinning, I find a solid comfort in exchanging views and experiences with those few still active about the moments of truth, incidents, information, and wisdom that have been the basic elements in my recovery. In retrospect, it seems that a life of sobriety, joy, and freedom is a product of structuring and simplifying the spiritual principles. The more we structure the spiritual principles, the freer we become. Keep it simple. At this point in time, I can with some objectivity, examine the past and bring forth the basic elements of truth and wisdom and learning to structure the spiritual guides and principles. I will not attempt to comment on the 12 steps of how it works, the 12 traditions of why it works, the 12 promises of goals and guarantees, the 12 concepts dealing with the welfare and the protection of the fellowship because I consider them to be inviolate, 
Each facet must be approached by each one of us in our own way and in God's time. In the foregoing, I spoke about the twelve steps and the four absolutes as the spiritual principles of our program. The twelve steps represent our philosophy. The four absolutes represent our self-help objectives to establish our relationship with God. The four absolutes and how to listen in prayer and meditation were borrowed from the Oxford group back in the days when we were seeking help and guidance to formulate a useful, happy, and a significantly sober life. If you will revisit the Twelve Steps with care, you will find the Four Absolutes to be the theme which is discernible in a sober life of quality. How to listen in prayer and meditation, as specifically called for in our tenth and our eleventh step, suggests a method and a medium to communicate with God that we will know His truth and power to practice that which is good. The Four Absolutes The Four Absolutes consist of absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute love, absolute purity. And because the Absolutes are not specifically repeated in our structured traditions, some of us are inclined to forget or ignore them. This premise is approximately as sound as it would be to suggest that the Holy Bible should be scuttled. Yet in many old-time groups for the solid spirit of our fellowship is so strongly exemplified, the absolutes receive frequent mention. Indeed, you often find a set of old placards carefully preserved which are trotted out for prominent display each meeting night. There could be a unanimity on the proposition that living our way of life must include not only an awareness but a constant striving towards greater achievement in the qualities which the absolutes represent. Now about the honesty absolute. Over and over we must ask ourselves, is it true or is it false? For honesty is the eternal search for truth. It is by far the most difficult of the four absolutes for anyone, but especially for us in this fellowship. The problem drinker develops genuine artistry and deceit. Too many, and we plead guilty, simply turn over a new leaf and relax. That is wrong. The real virtue and honesty lies in the persistent, dedicated striving for it. There is no relaxed twilight zone. It's either full speed ahead, constantly, or it's not honesty we seek. And the unrelenting pursuit of truth will set you free, even if you don't quite catch up to it. We need not choose to pursue falsity. All we need is to relax our pursuit of truth, and falsity will find us. The search for truth is the noblest expression of the soul. Let a human throw the engines of his soul into the doing or making of something good, and the instinct of workmanship alone will take care of his honesty. The noblest pleasure we can have is to find a great new truth and discard an old prejudice. When act is not actively sought, truth seldom comes to light, but falsehood does. 
Truth is life, and falsity is spiritual death. It is an everlasting, unrelenting instinct for truth that counts. Honesty is not a policy. It has to be a conscious, constant state of mind. Accuracy is close to being a twin brother of honesty. But inaccuracy and exaggeration are at least kissing cousins of dishonesty. We may bring ourselves to believe almost anything by rationalization, another of our fine arts. And so it's well to begin and end our inquiry with the questions, is it true? Any man who loves to search for truth is precious to any fellowship or society. Any intended violation of honesty stabs the health of not only the doer, but the whole fellowship. On the other hand, if we are honest to the limit of our ability, the basic appetite for truth in others, which may be dormant but not dead, will rise majestically to join us. Like sobriety, it's the power of example that does a job. It is much simpler to appear honest than to be honest. We must strive to be in reality what we appear to be. It is easier to be honest with others than with ourselves. Our searching self-endorsories help because the man who knows himself is at least on the doorstep of honesty. Our instinct for exhibitionism, even though held in check, is a form of honesty. When we try to enhance our stature in the eyes of others, dishonesty is there in the shadows. When falsehood even creeps in, we are getting back on the merry-go-round because falsehoods not only disagree with truth, they quarrel with each other. Remember, it is one thing to devoutly wish that the truth may be on your side, and it is quite another to wish sincerely to be on the side of truth. Honesty would seem to be the toughest of our four absolutes, and at the same time the most exciting challenge. Our sobriety is a gift, but honesty is a grace that we must earn and constantly fight to protect and enlarge. Is it true or false? Let us make that a ceaseless question that we try to answer with all the sober strength and intelligence we have. Absolute unselfishness. At first blush, unselfishness would seem to be the simplest of all to understand, define, and accomplish. But we have a long road to travel because ours was a real mastery of the exact opposite during our drinking days. A little careful thought will show that unselfishness in its finest sense, the kind for which we must strive for in our way of life, is not easy to reach or describe in detail. In the final analysis, it must gain for us the selflessness, which is our spiritual cornerstone, the real significance of our anonymity. Proceeding with the question method of digesting the absolute, we suggest you ask yourself over and over again in judging what you are about to do, say, think, or decide. How will this affect the other fellow? Our unselfishness must include not merely that which we do for others, but that which we do for ourselves. I once heard an old-timer say that this was a 100% selfish problem in one respect, namely that we had to maintain our own sobriety and its quality before we could possibly help others in a maximum degree. Yet we know we must give of ourselves to others in order to maintain our own sobriety, in the spirit of complete selflessness, with no thought of reward. How do we put these two things together?
Well, for one thing, it points up that we shall gain in direct proportion to the real help we give others. How many of us make hospital calls simply because we think we need to do it to stay sober? Those who think only of their own need and who reflect little on the question of doing the fellows at the hospital some genuinely good are missing the boat. We know, for we used to make hospital calls in much the same way that we took vitamin pills. Then one day in our early sobriety, we were asked to call on a patient. Never will we forget the anxiety on the way to that nursing home. And after nearly two hours of earnest talk, we left, worried about whether we had helped or hurt or perhaps had accomplished nothing at all. Some of his questions stayed with us. We thought of better answers later on and returned to see him several times. We are helped on our long journey to unselfishness by our great mission of understanding, which sometimes seems as precious as the gift of sobriety itself. But the quality cannot be confined alone to that which we do for others. We must be unselfish even in our pursuits of self-preservation. Not the least of our aid to others comes from the example of our own lives. Is there any protection against that first drink which equals our thought of what it might do to others? Those with unselfish love guided us in the beginning, and those who we in turn later guided, we are often reminded of the last verse of an anonymous poem. I must remember as I go through sober days, both high and low, what I must always seem to be for him who always follows me. Absolute love. We often learn more by questions than answers. Did you ever hear a question that caused you to think for days or even weeks? The questions which have no easy answer are often the key to the truth. However, in this series on the four absolutes, we are concerned with the questions we should be asking ourselves over and over again in life. The integrity of our answer to these questions will determine the quality of our life, may even determine the continuance of our sobriety. A good question to ask ourselves on love might be, is it ugly or is it beautiful? We are experts on ugliness. We have really been there. We are not experts on beauty, but we have tasted a little and we are hungry for more. Love is beauty. Coming from the depths of fear, physical agony, mental torture, and spiritual starvation, we feel completely unloved, impregnated with self-pity, poisoned by resentment, and devoured by a powerful ego with which alcohol has brought complete blindness. We receive understanding and love from strangers, and we make progress as we in turn give it to new strangers. It's as simple as that. Fortunately for us, love is inspiring from the very beginning, even in kindergarten, which is where many of us still are. The old song tells us that love is a many-splendored thing. In giving it, we receive it. But the joy of receiving can never match the real thrill of giving. Consider that this great mission of love, which is ours, is seldom experienced by the non-alcoholic, and you have a new reason for gratitude. Few are privileged to save lives. Fewer have the rich experience of being God's helper in the gift of the second life. Love is a poor man's beginning towards God. We reach our tall step when we give love to the new man who is poor today 
as we were poor yesterday. A man too proud to know he is poor has turned away from God with or without alcohol. We have been there too, but if he has a drinking problem, we can show him the way through love, understanding, and our own experience. When we live for our own sobriety, we again become beggars in spiritual rags, lying once again with the dust of pride and self. Soon we shall be starving with the hunger of devouring ourselves, perhaps even lose sobriety. Love is giving of yourself, and unless we do, our progress will be lost. Each one owes the gift of the second life of sobriety to every other human being he meets in the seamless presence of God, and especially to other alcoholics who still suffer. Not to give of himself brings the desolation of a new poverty to the sober alcoholic. When we offer love, we offer our life. Are we prepared to give it? When another offers us love, he offers his life. Have we the grace to receive it? When love is offered, God is there. Have we received him? The will to love is God's will. Have we taken the third step? Ask yourself, is it ugly or is it beautiful? And if it's truly beautiful, then it is the way of love. It is the way of AA. It is the will of God as we understand him. Absolute purity. Purity is simple to understand. Purity is flawless quality. Gerard Groot, in his famous 14th century book of meditation, had an essay entitled, A Pure Mind and Simple Intention, in which he says, By two wings a man is lifted up from things earthly, namely by simplicity and purity. Simplicity does tend towards God, purity does apprehend and taste Him. Purity is a quality of both the mind and heart, and perhaps we should say the soul of man. As far as the mind is concerned, it is a simple case of answering the question, is it right or is it wrong? That should be easy for us. There is no twilight zone between right and wrong. Even in our drinking days we knew the difference. With most of us, knowing the difference was a cause or part of the cause of our drinking. We did not want to face the reality of doing wrong. It isn't in the realm of the mental aspects of purity that our main problem lies. We can answer all the questions quoted above to the best of our ability and give the correct answer. It's in the realm of the heart and the spirit we face difficulty. We know which is right, but do we have the dedicated will to do it? Just as a real desire to stop drinking may exist to make our way of life effective for us, so we must have a determined desire to do that which we know is right. And if we are to achieve any measurable degree of purity, it has been well said that intelligence is discipline. In other words, knowledge means little until it goes into action. We knew we should not take that first drink, remember? Until we translate our knowledge into the action of our own lives, the value of it is non-existent. We are not intelligent under such circumstances, so it is with the decency of our lives we know what is right, but unless we do it, the knowledge is a haunting vacuum. In discussing unselfishness, we mentioned that it included more than just doing for others. We repeat that it includes all that we do since much of our help to others comes through our own example. 
Nowhere is this more true than in the decency and the rightness of our lives. Were we to contemplate the peace and contentment that a pure conscience would bring to us, and the joy and help that it would bring to others, we would be more determined about our spiritual progress. If our surrender under the third step has not been absolute, perhaps we should give the eleventh step more attention. If you have turned your will and your life over to God as you understand Him, purity will come to you in due course, because God is good. Let us just not tend towards God, let us taste of Him. In purity, as in honesty, the virtue lies in our striving, and like seeking truth, giving our all in this constant pursuit we will, will make us free, even though we may never quite catch up to it. Such pursuit is a thrilling and challenging journey. The journey is just as important as the destination, however slow it may seem, as it is said, in living as in knowing, be intent upon the purest way. Summarizing the four absolutes, our consideration of the absolutes individually leads us to a few conclusions. The twelve steps represent our philosophy. The absolutes represent our objective in self-help and the means to attain them. Honesty being this ceaseless search for truth is our most difficult and yet most challenging objective. It is a long road for anyone but a longer road for us to find the truth. Purity is easy to determine. We know what is right and wrong. Our problem here is the unrelenting desire to do that which is right. Unselfishness is the stream in which our sober life must flow, the boulevard down which we march triumphantly by the grace of God, ever alert against being sidetracked into a dark, obscure alley along the way. Our unselfishness must penetrate our whole life, not just our deeds for others, for the greatest gift we bestow on others is the example of our own life as a whole. Love is the medium, the blood of the good life, which circulates and keeps alive its worth and beauty. It is not only our circulatory system within ourselves, but it is our medium of communication to others. The real virtue is in our striving for these absolutes. It is a never-ending journey, and our joy and happiness must come each step of the way, not at the end, because the end is endless. Cicero said, If you pursue good with labor, the labor passes and the good remains. But if you court evil through pleasure, the pleasure passes and the evil remains. Our life is a diary in which we mean to write one story and usually write quite another. It is when we compare the two that we have our humblest hour. But let's compare through our self-industry and make today a new day. Men who know themselves have at least ceased to be fools. Remember, if you follow the golden rule, it's always your move too. To love what is true and right and not to do it is in reality not to love it. And we are trying to face reality, remember? The art of living in truth and right is the finest of fine arts, and like any fine art, must be learned slowly and practiced with incessant care. We must approach this objective of the absolutes humbly. We pray for these things, and sometimes forget that these virtues must be earned. The gates of wisdom and truth are closed to those wise in their conceit, but ever open to the humble and to the teachable.
to discover what is true and to practice what is good are the two highest aims in life. If we would love, if we would be humble, we would not stoop, but rather we should stand to our fullest height, close to our highest power that shows us what the smallest of our greatness is. Remember our four questions. Is it true or false? Is it right or wrong? How will this affect the other fellow? And is it ugly or beautiful? Answering these queries every day with absolute integrity and following the dictates of those answers one day at a time will surely lead us well on our journey towards absorbing and applying the absolutes. Now about prayer and meditation. The nine steps on how to listen is not offered as the only way, as the state of the art is different for each of us. However, how to listen is offered as a basis for prayer and meditation that will make and discover that the way of love is the way of AA and the will of God as we understand Him. But everybody longs for a union with God. And those of us who have tried to improve our conscious contact with God by using human wisdom and knowledge have failed. But God has a plan. God can show you what to do, not in a vague general way, but in a practical way that makes life different and gives you a new direction. Some people do not believe in God. It can work for them too, because for all of us, it is an experiment. Many people pray, but they do all the talking. God gave man two ears and one mouth, so why don't we listen twice as much as we talk? Step one, take time. Take time in the early morning. If you want to establish a union with God, you have to take time to find the right plan. The early morning seems to be the best time to tune up our lives. Open your heart to God and write down the thoughts that come to you. Step two, take paper and pencil. God is always speaking. How can you listen? Here's the answer. You write it down so that you can listen better and you can remember his words. It is practical. You decide to live by and strive for a set of absolute moral standards. You are quiet. You write down the thoughts that come. Step three, is every thought you get a thought from God? Certainly not. Most of us have been in touch with the wrong sources of information for a long time. They influence us. So we need to test our thoughts. A. Are they in line with absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love? B. Are they in love with our real duties, domestic, business, social, community, country, and mankind? C. There is a test of other minds. More light comes in through two windows than one. When in doubt, look for direction with others who have wholeheartedly opened their minds to God. Step four. Talk over what you have written. Talk with your spouse, sponsor, members of the group, and if need be, a spiritual advisor. There are three sides to every question. Your side, my side, and the right side. Guidance shows which is the right side. Not who is right, but what is right. Step 5. What if two or more people get different ideas? Be honest about your motives. Have further quiet. Thoughts may come showing where disunity has come in. 
Her lack of honesty, her lack of trust. Put these right. The united plan is not hard to find. It will come. Step six. Carry out the thoughts that have come. You will only be sure of guidance as you carry it out. You cannot prove that a rudder will guide a ship until the ship is moving. But anyone determined to change and build a new life can find in the silence the way to go forward. It is in the silence that we are reborn. Step 7. What if no guidance comes? Generally, there is an answer. Here are some of the blocks to guidance. A. Any wrong relationship in my life? B. Any wrong that I have not faced and put right? C. Any compromise or indulgence I will not give up? D. Anything I know I should do and have not done? Put these things right and try again. Step 8. What are the results? A growing number in our fellowship are committing themselves to take time in the morning and quiet to find the way. They are being renewed. Lives are being united. A new dimension of noble ideals and spiritual forces are now in place, and you have a place in God's plan. When man listens and obeys, God speaks and acts. Step 9. A new life and world can be ours. If we will listen and carry out his plan, we can have a new and exciting life. To continue to improve our conscious contact with God, we must strive to take our personal inventory and maintain a clear and clean conscience as called for in our tenth step. Through prayer and meditation, God's will will be revealed. And if we are painstaking about the eleventh step, we will have knowledge of his plan and the power to practice the principles of love, honesty, unselfishness, purity in all of our affairs as set forth in the twelve steps and join in the fellowship of the Spirit. Unfortunately, in these later years, we have been assaulted and subjected to alien philosophies and quasi-scientific theories that are not improving and have not improved the prospects for attaining and maintaining a life of sobriety. While it is said that a new person is the lifeblood of our fellowship, I strongly suggest that, uh, that without a strong, enthusiastic, vigorous effort to recapture our lost position and interest in the 12-step work, also personal and group sponsorship, we will become the treatment centers in countergroups and dumpsters. The new person's chances are no better than the quality of the individual and group leadership. And the obvious answer is to return to the tried and true principles of love and service as it was practiced in the beginning. Dr. Bob made the statement in his last address in Cleveland when he spoke to, Bob, to us about keeping the program simple. Bob's farewell address was very emotional, and most of us knew that he was terminal and soon to die. As he stood and looked about him, he mentioned how grateful it was that he had had an opportunity to look and see us and deliver a message. 
who began his message by saying, my good friends in AA, there are two or three things that flashed into my mind on which it would be fitting to lay a little emphasis. One is the simplicity of our program. Let's not loss it up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual AA work, our 12 steps, when simmered down to the last resolve themselves into the words love and service. We understand what love is. We understand what service is. So let's bear those two things in mind. Let us also remember to guard the errand under the tongue, and if we must use it, let's use it with kindness and consideration and tolerance. And one more thing, none of us would be here today if somebody hadn't taken time to explain things to us, to give us a little pat on the back, to take us to a meeting or two, to do numerous little kind and thoughtful acts on our behalf. So let us never get such a degree of smug complacency that we are not willing to extend or attempt to extend to our less fortunate brothers that help which has been so beneficial to us. And he thanked us and sat down. Like most of us there, I was transfixed. I knew that I had heard and been at the moment of truth. The message of love and service, I now understood. This beautiful man will live in the hearts of all of us for all times. His vision and wisdom guided us through the troubled times when we were seeking information to formulate and define our relationships and the course of action to govern our members and the groups in the pursuit of those novel ideals of love and service. His acts of love, unselfishness, purity, and honesty in all of his affairs is still with us. And for this, we thank God. And now let me close with the Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. The serenity prayer in its entirety is the epitome and the essence of our spiritual philosophy and concepts. It places us in the now and assures us that if we strive to think and act in harmony with God's will, that we can trust Him to make all things right. Surely God is good. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.